So um, this morning's reading is taken from 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 to 21 and you can find that on page 1227 in the church bible. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who has been born of God and knows God Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Praise be to God. Thank you very much, Mark, for reading. I don't know about you, I don't have many memories from my primary school days, Um, uh, but I have got one. And it was the memory of the time when um, we were doing composition, writing stories. And um, and our teacher, my primary school teacher, said to me, never use the word nice. Uh, Always find a better word, a more specific word. Don't say it's a nice day, say it's a sunny day. Don't say it's a nice dog, say it's a bouncy dog. Um, And that's stuck in my memory from primary school days. Now, it seems to me that that something similar can go on with the word love, can't it? Just to sort of, you know, it kind of becomes a bland word. Uh, It gets used so broadly, so widely, um, that that it just sort of slides through our fingers as not really meaning very much. Plato apparently thought love was a grave mental disease. Um, George Bernard Shaw declared that love was a dirty trick played on us to achieve the continuation of the species. And then there was another cynic who said that love was a temporary insanity, curable by marriage. Ooh, ouch. Well, you won't find any of that cynicism clearly here, will you, in the, the passage that uh, Marcus just read for us. Um, and if you're beginning to get a, a feel for, for, 
for 1 John, you'll, you'll know that one of the things that, that happens in 1 John is the same idea um, winds round again and again. We, we keep coming back um, to, the, to the same issue. Um, and I've, I've likened it, we've likened it to a, to a kind of spiral staircase. And you know, as you go around a spiral staircase, you, you see the same view again, because you've come round once more. But you're getting higher. Um, and uh, the, the, the writer and, and speaker, John Stott, uh, reckons that on the issue of the love of God, this is where we reach the summit. This is when we, we arrive at the high point uh, in our thinking and understanding uh, of the love of God. Well, two, two ideas uh, that we're going to try and just consider as we think about these issues. Uh, we're going to think about God uh, and, an, and an understanding of, um, of love itself. Uh, and then we're going to think about the church and uh, the reflection of love uh, that um, uh, occurs amongst us. So first, um, God and an understanding of love. Um, twice in the passage, you'll have noticed it, twice in the passage uh, comes a really striking phrase, just three words, God is love. Important that we grasp what, what John's saying here. John's not saying God is loving. It's more than that. He's not, as it were, saying, look, love, that's, that's a pretty central, pretty important feature um, of, of one of the things, that, one of the attributes that God has. Now, he pushes further it, by saying God is love. So we might say David is Scottish. We might say Rachel is generous. We might say Matt is musical. But it would never occur to us to say David is Scotland or Rachel is generosity or Matt is music. I mean, it'd just be a bizarre thing to say, wouldn't it? It'd sort of, you barely understand what we would mean by the words. And yet, this is what John is saying here God is love. Not that it's a characteristic that he has, but, but that it kind of defines him. It is him. Um, our experience of emotion um, is, that, is that our emotions, our feelings, they come and go, don't they? Um, they, they ebb and flow in that sense. Um, so somebody does something nice to us and we feel loving towards them. And then somebody does something not very nice to us and, and that feeling of love evaporates. Our feelings... Um, they, they wax and wane according to what's happening around us. But it's not like that with God. You, you can't affect God's feelings in that kind of way. Um, God's feelings are constant. They're, 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 they're not vulnerable, as it were, to things that come at him from outside. Otherwise, he wouldn't be in control. Another way to say it is to say that with God, every good and perfect emotion is felt maximally all of the time. And that's what makes him completely different to made-up gods. And the Greeks have made-up gods uh, in, in, in the period of the, um, of the early church. And those, those Greek gods, well, they, they had hissy fits, Sometimes they fell in love. Sometimes they had tantrums. You, you never knew kind of what mood you were going to meet a Greek god in. 
how completely different uh, is the true God, the God that really is, steadfast, sure, certain. He's constant because he loves perfectly, fully, absolutely, because he is love. And verse 7 tells us that love comes from God, that he's its source, its origin. It's almost like saying that all of the tributaries of love um, that flow, you trace them back and you find that the fountainhead for all of them is God. But of course, that's not all that we could say about God. Um, Back in the beginning of this letter, John tells us that it's not only true to say that God is love, but it's also true to say that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And by saying that, what John is getting at is that that God is pure, he's righteous, he's, he's utterly holy. And he can't abide wickedness or evil or sin. Um, Those things cannot dwell with him. And you can immediately see, can't you, that 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 leaves us in a bit of a bind. Because it'd be lovely for God to love us. But if God is light and he can't abide with, with any evil or any wickedness, well, I know that I'm not perfectly good like God. So how will God treat me? How will he manage to be both of these things at the same time? How will he manage to be love and light simultaneously when he's faced with somebody like me who isn't perfect? How will he deal with me? Well, John supplies the answer for us in in verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. And then verse 10 spells it out a little bit further. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's a slightly funny word, but I think we roughly get the idea of atonement, don't we? It's when we try to put things right, when we try to do something to atone for something we've done wrong. So I promise that I'm going to be home at at 6 p.m. and I turn up at midnight. But it's okay because I turn up with a bunch of flowers um, in the hope that my bunch of flowers will atone for my failure uh, to keep my promise to be home six hours earlier. Uh, The bunch of flowers is my atonement for my failings. Now, trivial example what we have here, much more serious. Because God doesn't give flowers, God gives himself in sacrifice, in death. And in in so doing, God manages both to, to hate evil, to punish sin, and simultaneously to love us. Do you see that? That's what goes on on the cross. God is light and judges absolutely. And punishment is dispensed upon evil and wrong. But because God takes that punishment upon himself, he is simultaneously loving. He finds a way to be both love and light in the same moment on the cross. 
This then is love. Not, not a gesture, not a, not a contribution. God's not meeting us halfway. But God shows us a complete and undeserved and unqualified giving of self for the good of the other. And then tells us this is love. A complete, unreserved giving of the self for the other. And says this is love. And that's not nice, is it? That's not bunch of flowers nice. This is love as defined by God. And it's stunning. And it's extraordinary. And it leaves us gasping at the giving of God of himself for us. Love defined by God, revealed in Christ, poured out upon us. And the second thing the passage shows us is that this love that God has shown to us, this love that, that sits at the very center of, of all reality, is to be reflected in the love that we show uh, to one another. Um, it, it's everywhere in this passage, isn't it? Um, you see the idea again and again and again. Um, see it there first in verse 7. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. You get it then in, again in verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It, it ought to follow. Or again in verse 19. We love, why? Because he first loved us. John's kind of saying, look, this is a necessary consequence. This is an inevitable outcome. Put it another way, if you go back to our memory verse, see what love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Well, if you're a child of God, if you've had love lavished upon you, you ought to show the family likeness. And the family likeness is to love in the way that God loves. It ought to be there if you're a child of God. It ought to be an inevitable, necessary consequence of having been loved in this kind of way. And, and to make his point strongly, John puts the negative. Verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It's even stronger over the page in verse 20, isn't it? Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. A couple of things um, to, to, to be really clear about here. Um, first, notice who it is that's being loved. Um, it's not love in general that is, that, that, that's in John's mind here. It's, it's very specific love. It's, you get to the end of, a, uh, of some stage performance um, and uh, the artist on the stage throws arms wide uh, as, the, uh, as the audience is applauding him and says, I love you, I love you all. I mean, it's just words. It doesn't mean anything, does it? There's no, no real love being given. It's not that kind of love, not that sort of, just sort of sentimental expression. Now, the love that's being described here is the love of the church the love to brother and sister. The kind of love that, I don't know, what would it do? 
kind of love that might overcome social anxiety to determine to go and introduce yourself to somebody who looks new or is stood on their own. That would be one expression of it, wouldn't it? You'd just decide to do that. And even though you feel a bit self-conscious, you'd do it. Or maybe it would be, in our current climate, the love that overcomes fear to care for the person in your small group who's self-isolating because they may or may not have coronavirus. And love says, even though I'm a bit nervous, actually, I'll go visit. I'll take some stuff around for them. I'll make sure they're all right. Because that would be love. That would be the giving of the self, wouldn't it? To care for another without concern for your own well-being, but a greater concern for their well-being. That would be a cross-shaped love, wouldn't it? That kind of thing. And and secondly, we need to to, to get the sequence right. To see that this love begins with God, uh, that it goes that way around and not the other. Um, The the point is, is not that because we love other people, because of that, God then starts loving us. That's the way it works with religion. That's the way it works in any, in any sort of context where people imagine, look, look, we'll do some really good stuff and God will be really pleased with us and he'll start loving us and, and we'll, we'll get good stuff from God um, as a reward for all the good things that we're doing. But that's not what's being said here, is it? it, it it's the other way around. It, Christian faith the gospel of grace says that to our astonishment we discover that we are loved by God. Undeserved love. Sort of love that we could never have imagined we would get. And the astonishment that we find, that we feel in being loved in that kind of way draws out of us, brings from us, transforms us to to become people who love one another in the context of the church. Religion is the, the grumpy older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, isn't it? All these years I've been slaving for you and you've not even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. Grumpy, grumpy, grumpy. Look, I've done all this for you. I, I deserve now for you to love me. That's what religion looks like. But, but grace, the Christian faith, is the story of the prodigal son who is so astonished that the father loves him, lavishes these good things upon him, that he is transformed by it. Um, one or two of you might have seen it, not many. A bit arty film, Babette's Feast. Um, come across that? It's a, it's a funny arty film um, about a a little religious community on on a very bleak bit of Danish coastland um, back in the last century or possibly even the one before that. Um, And this little religious community has has become about as bleak as the landscape that it's set on. It's sort of joyless and grey and there's lots of sort of division and crossness and bitterness and grudges. Um, It's all pretty desperate. And into this community um, comes Babette, She's a political refugee um, and has been forced to take up a position as sort of housekeeper um, to the two daughters of the founder of this religious community. And these two daughters um, are are both sort of spinsters and they're sort of 
Um, they're grumpy and elderly and um, bitter and self-righteous. And, and the turning point in the film comes when um, the anniversary of the birth of the founder of this religious um, community comes along. And Babette um, suggests to the two sisters that she cook a meal um, to, to mark the occasion. And they agree. And what they don't know is that before she was forced into political exile, she was in fact the top chef of the best restaurant in Paris. And what they also, um, the other relevant thing, is that recently she has won a fortune in a lottery. And she chooses to spend the entire fortune that she has gained uh, to, to, to ship in all of the, the most sort of wonderful produce, the greatest delicacies uh, that she needs. And you see these boats arriving on this bleak Danish coastland and all these people carrying these crate after crates. And the sisters are thinking, what's going on here? And then the moment comes and she serves this meal and the community is gathered to eat. Um, and in the film, it, you just see this glorious transformation as these astonishing dishes of the most exquisite food are placed in front of these grumpy people. And you watch as the community is melted, just overcome by the lavish gift of grace that they couldn't have dreamt, that they never experienced before, that is beyond their imagination. And you watch as lifelong enemies begin to thaw in their relationship. Now, for that to happen, you've got to be astonished, haven't you? You've got to be astonished and think, this is like nothing else I've ever had before. You've also got to be aware of the vast expense that went into putting this feast in front of me. Those things clear to you? When, when, we, when we take this bread and wine in a few minutes, are those things clear to you? That this is like nothing that you've ever tasted before, this grace from God. And the cost of it, for, for God to, to leave eternity, enter into time, God to take on a human flesh so that nails could be banged through his body. The cost of it. When you see that, then just like Babette's feast in front of this community, the community is transformed. Uh, uh, we love because he first loved us. Babette's feast does its job. It achieves its purpose. It's, it, it, it's completed by the transformation of the community. God's love for us is completed when we become the kind of community where love is expressed. Because that, that's what God did it for. He did it so that in eternity we might be part of a heavenly community who have that kind of love. And we're supposed to get that underway here and now. And in verse 13, John says, this is how we can know that we live in him and he in us. He says, look, here's your assurance. Here's how you can be confident about this. Here's how you can know that this is happening, that this is real. Because you see it going on. 
So last week, some in our community helped a family move house. So they prepared and they packed, they cleaned and they carried. They loved. Others in our community attended a service for a stillborn child. And they wept together in demonstration of love. Still others comforted a family who'd just heard disappointing news about a job. And they reached out in love. And those are just three that I know about in this past week. There'll be many, many others that I know nothing of. Expressions of love that reflect the reception of love. It's what happens when grace is received. And it is central to the witness of our church, of any church. Just as we close, um, look, at, look at verse 12 uh, for a moment. See how it begins. No one has ever seen God, but... Look familiar? Seen those kind of words before somewhere? Comes at the beginning of John's Gospel, doesn't it? it? It's not exactly the same words in the original, but pretty close. At the beginning of John's Gospel, John tells, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son has made him known. That's great. Jesus came. People could see him, listen to him, talk with him, watch him. And in that way, God was made manifest. God who is invisible was seeable. Now, do you see what John is doing now? Same phrase. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. You can't see Jesus anymore, but you can see his body here on earth. That's how the church is described, the body of Christ. Central to our witness, to our declaration, to our, to our manifesting, revealing of God is the love that gets expressed within the community of Christ. And kind of topical to think back to... Um, the early period of the, of the, of the Christian church. Um, historians tell us that one of the things that was enormously influential um, in the Christian faith being taken up in the Roman Empire was when Rome was overcome by plague. And Roman citizens were leaving Rome, getting away from the plague. All except for Christians who stayed in the city to care for those who were sick, who set up arrangements, provision to care for sick people, despite the danger to themselves. And the Roman authorities saw that, saw that love being expressed, saw the transformation that Christ had brought about. And historians say that was a huge driver for the Roman Empire absorbing the Christian faith. Kind of topical, isn't it? 
midst of a coronavirus, midst of our own little plague. How are you doing with your feelings about that? Because this passage says perfect love drives out fear. Uh, And it means the fear of punishment, but I think it, it means fear in other ways as well. Perfect love drives out fear. The love that God has for us and the love that we find we manage to reflect uh, for one another. And because of that, verse 17, we have confidence on the day of judgment. Not because we're good enough, but because we have been loved enough. Two things as we come uh, to share bread and wine together. First, as, as you see this kind of love being expressed in your small group um, amongst us as a community, give thanks to God for it. Let it assure you of the reality uh, of the gospel message. This is how you can know. But if you don't see this love at work in your heart, then can I say, don't try harder. That would be the wrong path to go down. You you find that you're not loving much, you're not feeling much love. Don't don't say, right, I'll try harder, I'm going to try and do a bit more loving. That would be to to set off down the religion path. No, no, no. If you find that your heart is not as warm with love to brothers and sisters as you know it should be, um, look the other way. Look to Christ. Come to the feast. Let the lavish love that Jesus has shown you on the cross melt your heart afresh, or even for the very first time. Uh, Because by that means will you come to reflect the love that Christ has shown in atoning sacrifice. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing before we take bread and wine together. Uh, We praise you for such love lavished upon us. Uh, Thank you for uh, loving us, uh, even though it cost you uh, that terrible sacrificial death on the cross. Uh, and would, um, would our encounter um, with Christ's love for us uh, and the reminder of it that we're going to share in a moment, uh, would it uh, do the great work uh, that you intend? Uh, would your love be made complete in us uh, as we learn to, to love one another? And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.